0: Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Barron. Every week, I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders, and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience, and regeneration. End Climate Silence is a volunteer organisation that pushes the news media to cover the climate crisis with the urgency it deserves. With digital activism and direct outreach, it works to change the paradigm for climate journalism. Climate is not simply a science or environmental story, but the essential context for every story journalists are reporting. End Climate Silence also works to get fossil fuel money out of journalism, to break up corrupt alliances between news executives and fossil fuel companies. Learn more at endclimatesilence.org. I am very pleased today to welcome Ned Bowman to the podcast. Ned is a British novelist, journalist and screenwriter, the author of five novels. His latest is Venomous Lumpsucker, a brilliant, darkly satirical and terrifying new novel about extinction. So thank you very much, Ned, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Now, before we start to discuss your wonderful satirical and very entertaining and timely book, um, I would like to maybe just get a sense, I don't know, if you could introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your background. And uh, yeah, that'd be great. Thank you.
1: My name is Ned Diamond. I was born in... 1985, so now 37. Uh, I grew up in North London and I still live in North London. Uh, My first novel, Boxer Beetle, came out in 2010. And my most recent one, as you say, is uh, Venomous Lumpsucker, which came out in July Great.
0: Now, before we start to talk about uh, Venomous Lumsucker and hopefully not reveal too much about the uh, the uh, goings-on and, uh, and the ending and, and plot, uh, points of, of, of importance, um, can you maybe just set the scene a little bit? I'm, I'm always curious to get a sense of what's on people's minds from, from an environmental perspective. What would you say that at the moment most worries you, most keeps you awake about the, the environmental uh, crisis?
1: Uh, well, I've been following the Tory leadership contest and uh, at time of podcasting, it looks like Liz Truss is definitely going to be the next Prime Minister and it's increasingly obvious she doesn't care about the climate at all. Um, so it's uh, a bit depressing to anticipate that we're not really going to make any progress for the foreseeable future. Um other than what people are able to accomplish in spite of the apathy or the hostility from the very top.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I suppose in America, when Trump was in power, there were you did see parts of uh, America, some of the states, some of the cities, and even i guess some companies but not very many uh making some uh, progress or momentum on the environmental front but um in the uk it's hard to see it i guess uh, quite quite a number of initiatives coming out of the eu which are quite powerful but um not really going to have much impact and i suppose uh, in some sense uh britain will try and set itself up to uh be an alternative to a more costly regulatory regimes certainly financial and others
1: yeah, I mean, it's a shame that Wales, wherever, can't just do its own thing in the way that California can in the US. <laughs> yes,
0: yeah, absolutely. What what gives you uh, op- optimism? What what what? Where do you see, or do you see any seeds of optimism?
1: Um, well, from what I've been reading uh, from people like uh, David Wallace Wells. I get the sense that the projections we have at the moment are actually not as bad as the worst-case scenarios from a few years ago, because, in fact, some progress has been made and the science is getting a bit more precise. Uh, and, you know, uh, David wallace as the uninhabitable Earth made a huge impression on me, but the sense I get from... Reading him is that the the most like unmitigatedly apocalyptic scenarios from that book are maybe now beyond the margin of the uh, likely future. So at least that is good to hear.
0: Your book, uh, *Venomous Sucker, is uh, very funny and very satirical and very grounded in it seems to me uh some of the mechanics shall we say of current um, aspects of financial markets and the way in which financial markets and enviro- the environment are are interlinking as as it were in the way the the, the, the reliance that uh, governments and indeed corporations financial institutions are, are putting on on uh dealing with the climate through financial markets and so forth that's uh, the, the level of detail and and accuracy is quite striking in the book, and I'm just wondering, when did you? At what point did you think? Uh, I mean, have you a longstanding interest in financial markets, and uh, or, or or was it more that you, you you spotted some trends, or how how did you put 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 that together with with the environmental
1: crisis? Well, my interest in uh, the kind of technical details of finance is relatively. Recent And a lot of it is because I read this newsletter called Money Stuff by Matt Levine. He's a Bloomberg writer and he writes this daily newsletter about what's going on uh, in finance. And it's just so uh, witty and readable that it has uh, just on its own made me really interested in something that I would have thought was boring before. I mean, also, my dad is an economist, so it's weird in a way that... Uh, I didn't take an interest in this stuff sooner. But anyway, um, I am now and uh, that was part of it. And then, but the specific inspiration for the book was um, several years ago, I remember seeing this kind of uh, sort of satirical, uh, I don't know, it was a website, I suppose, and maybe some press releases about this thing called cheat neutral the premise of which was um, offsetting your infidelity so if you were married and you wanted to have an affair you could pay someone else who was going to have an affair to not have an affair um, and therefore morally the act would be neutral and obviously this was intended as a satire of carbon offsets and I don't think it quite works as a satire because I think there are some important differences between infidelity and carbon emissions that make the analogy fail, but it really stuck in my mind. And then more recently, when I wanted to write something about the intersection between capitalism and the climate crisis... uh, I think it helped bring to mind this idea of extinction credits, which is the premise of the book, that in the future, if you want to drive an endangered species to an extinction, uh, you will be able to buy a credit to do that completely legally. Uh, And as soon as I had that idea, I thought, uh, this is a novel. But I also thought, if I write this, I do want to get into the nitty-gritty. I want to do some world building, decide how it would actually work in practice uh, and, you know, put to work some of the reading about finance I've done over the last few years.
0: Oh, very interesting. It's, it's very funny, uh, Satire, and I've got to ask you, is it okay, do you think, to laugh about climate?
1: Um, I mean... I was asked this question recently about whether the humour in the book comes out of rage. And I had to point out that I also recently wrote an essay about my dog and the essay about my dog was supposed to be funny and it's not because I feel rage about my Havanese. It's because I just try and make everything I write at least possibly funny because... uh, I don't completely understand why anyone would want to publish a piece of writing that doesn't have at least a few jokes in it. Unless, you know, you're trying to kind of carve out something of profound moral seriousness. And I found when I was writing my first couple of novels, which were both set against the background of the rise of fascism and then the Holocaust... I just don't have the inner moral seriousness to write a book about an atrocity that, you know, really stares it in the face and takes it completely seriously. My stuff is always kind of one step removed making the jokes. And, you know, I don't think that was harmful to do with my two Holocaust novels. I say that as a Jewish person with ancestors who fled the Holocaust. Like, I don't think it makes things any worse for the victims to joke about it. And, of course, you know, I'm not joking about it in the sense of minimising it or diminishing it. I'm joking about how strange human behaviour is in response to it and how strange uh, a world we, we built for ourselves. Um, and also, you know, we we should all be thinking a lot about the climate crisis, I think, and reading a lot about the climate crisis. But if we make the decision that, well, as soon as we start thinking about the climate crisis, that's a complete humor-free zone for until we put it down and do something else, then no one's really going to want to do it, I think.
0: Yeah, no, that's very interesting. And I suppose uh, I haven't come across that that many, uh, should we say, uh, comic or humorous or satirical uh, novels about climate, and uh, I'm just wondering, in general, as, as you say, you know, it, it would be very strange if, if areas of art were, you know, put out of bounds. Say, well, we can't laugh at this. This is a very serious question, and so forth. But this broader question of the, the way in which I guess literature or literary fiction has dealt with. Uh, and does deal with various kinds of environmental crises and so forth. I think Amitav Ghosh wrote about this. Um, others, um, you know, there's been, a, I guess, a burgeoning uh, books ab- about about this. How, how well do you think uh, literature has done dealing with these questions?
1: Um, well, yeah, as Amitav Ghosh has pointed out, it's difficult to write about climate because. Climate change is what Timothy Morton, for instance, calls a hyper and literary fiction conventionally is about individuals, and it's just difficult to reconcile those two things. Uh, even more so because, although of course climate change does cause fires and floods and landslides, and so on, for most people, most of the time, it's a kind of lethally gradual, undramatic thing. So it's just hard to integrate with a novel. I mean, in a sense, I took the easy way out by writing about people who are directly involved in environmental related industries so they have a reason to be thinking and talking about climate change because they're at work uh it's harder to uh connect all that stuff with a so-called normal person who isn't actually for plot reasons under the obligation to be thinking and talking about it all the time um, it's true that I don't think it has filtered into literary fiction as a background to quite the extent that one might expect. I remember seeing someone say, I can't remember who, a few years ago that in a sense, from now on, every novel set in the present is going to be a climate change novel because climate change is ubiquitous and in a a way it's the only subject uh, and in fact, I don't really feel like that has been borne out uh, if you look at the you know hyped novels that are coming out about people in the present day. But uh, like I said, I don't really blame people for not having found a way to integrate it because it's difficult to integrate, especially if you're writing... The sort of novel that is a bit more intimate and human and less technical and full of facts than mine, the kind of thing I do makes it easier. But if that's not the kind of thing you do, it is more of a challenge. So I can, you know, forgive people for slightly averting their gaze from it when they write a novel.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. I mean, the two characters that center your book, they they work for the Brahma Samudram Corporation, if I got that right. could you maybe just tell us what this company does and I guess how it impinges upon the extinction industry, which you talked about?
1: Uh, Yeah. So Brahma Samudram Mining Corporation is a fictional Indian mining corporation with big holdings all over the world. Uh, it's meant to be the equivalent of a Rio Tinto or something that has uh, expanded fast in the years between now and uh, 15 or 20 years hence when the book is set uh, and the two main characters, one of them is an Australian guy called Mark Halyards, and he works for Bramson Moodram, um as a environmental impact coordinator uh which basically means he goes from site to site working out how they can kind of obliterate the landscape with minimal hassles involving uh environmental regulations um and the other character Uh, is a Swiss woman called Karen Resaint, and she works as a species intelligence evaluator, uh, which is a kind of novel job, which exists because in this system of extinction credits, uh, you have to spend more extinction credits to eradicate an intelligent species than a non-intelligent one because everyone agrees that losing an intelligent species is a bigger loss. Um, So someone has to certify whether these endangered species are intelligent or not. So she's a former expert in artificial intelligence who retrains as an expert in animal cognition. And then she also travels from site to site, writing reports on these endangered species species about whether it's okay for them to be obliterated by a company such as Brahma and uh, And so her and Halyard end up colliding in the course of their two jobs um, uh, because of this particular species of fish uh, that lives in the Baltic called the venomous lump sucker. The title of the work, of course.
0: Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting, I think, is this um, rec- recognizing the, the the I guess the world we're in, but it's it's in the future, but not sufficiently or not so far away in the future that that it's uh, very disorienting. We've got drones, more capacious and strange, and things like that. H- how did you think about this? How far to go in the future? How many you know new waves of technology?
1: Well. It was just a case of uh, I come up with this extension credit system and I didn't want the plot to take place at the birth of the extension credit system. I wanted it to take place once the system had been bedded in for a while because quite a lot of the book is about people finding ways to kind of game it or undermine it or make money off it so I wanted it to be a kind of established fact in the world of the book where in many ways the rot has already started to set in so I thought that's going to take at least 10 or 15 years before it stops feeling too new Uh, and I could have said it further ahead but um you know, the further you go, uh, the kind of bigger bets you have to make about what the world is going to look like and the more you feel like you're just groping in the dark because, you know, uh, technological advance is so unpredictable, like some things go so much faster than other things, and then other things accelerate and pull ahead. Um, But I thought if it's about 15 or 20 years in the future, I can make some reasonably solid bets about, yeah, things like drones and facial recognition and deep fakes and AI. You know, none of these things are going to go into reverse. So I feel... Even if the details are gonna be proven wrong, I'm sure if anyone looks at this book again in 20 years' time, at least the direction of travel and I think the rough place they'll have in our lives, you can you can feel semi confident about trying to like sketch sketch in the world in that way.
0: Yeah, no, and, and and the corporations of course, you know, the the profit seeking corporations the financialization of nature um already you know we you talked about the you know carbon offsets and so forth but we already have uh quite quite some momentum around biodiversity offsets which are seem to be quite paradoxical idea that you can, you know, offset some damage you do in one particular ecosystem with some, some, some something that you do in in another one in another another part of the world.
1: Yeah. So you know, uh, when I gave a first draft of the book to one of my early readers, one of the things he said to me was, "I know the extinction credits idea is supposed to be." Satirical, but it's just so ridiculous. I don't think it even really works as satire. And I was able to say to him, pretty much every detail of the extinction credit system is drawn from real details of kind of nature related or climate related financial instruments, including the fact that um it treats completely non-fungible things as fungible. So, yeah, in this world, if you want to eradicate a particular fish, you can pay someone else to not eradicate a particular bird, even though, you know, it's two unique species. They're not straightforwardly commensurable in that way. But as you say, we already have... Uh, you know, pilot programs and things like wetland banking and biodiversity banking where you're basically, uh, you know, plus one ecosystem minus another ecosystem. It balances out. It's all fine. But ecosystems are the most complex things in the world. So you can't just... uh, Treat them like they are, you know, widgets that can be exchanged for other widgets of equal value. And then, of course, on top of that, because they're so complex, the only way these systems are going to work is by absolutely unblinking and expert attention by the regulators. But, you know, the whole West is in this. Era of austerity politics, so regulators are not funded, the attention doesn't happen. So, you know, you try and offset something that's fundamentally unique and complex, it's just not really going to work. But yet, although the book is satirical, people are trying to do things like that in the real world, and you know, I'm sure it's done some good, but one of the arguments of the book is. This is really not the way to go about things.
0: Yes. And I just have to ask this question about the, the this question of the genome databases, one of the biobanks, multimodal preservation. Um, I, I don't know. I'm not so familiar with this territory, whether it's already uh, happening in any sense Um the idea of a species, you know, as information, as it were. Um, and, and again, that can, you know, you can see why certain, uh, you know, specious arguments would be philosophical arguments as it were, that could be put forward to try and somehow lessen the, the, the reality of the, you know, brutality of, 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 of the horror of, of, of genuine, you know, uh, physical extinction of, you know, animals with, with flesh and cartilage and, you know, all the rest.
1: Yeah. I mean, there is a big movement to preserving, you know, DNA samples of endangered species in these, you know, so-called ARCs, which I think is a good thing, you know, better to do it than not to do it. But, you know, as I talk about in the book, even if you could clone some extinct species, if you bring it back and then just put it in a, you know white room in a lab or even if you put it in you release it in some forest that bears some resemblance to its original habitat uh a species is not just its genome it's also a whole collection of relationships and entanglements with not only its you know fellow members of the species but also the whole ecosystem it used to inhabit and you know the culture that was passed down because some more intelligent animals genuinely do have a culture that they pass down from person to person so you know if you just clone one and bring it back it's as if you or i were cloned and brought back and we found ourselves in some lab a thousand years of the future i mean it kind of would be you or me but like in many quite critical ways uh it wouldn't so in the book, you know, this is sort of speculative. I, I, I say, well, you don't just need the DNA samples. You need very extensive brain scans. Uh, you need very extensive documentation of the behavior in the wild. You even need samples of, you know, their gut biome because that's something that's passed from mother to child, so you won't necessarily be able to bring that back if you clone them. So the idea is this stuff has become a bit more sophisticated, so maybe we could bring back a more sort of realistic textured version of this, you know, bereft, cloned animal. Um, but, you know, what I think more the problem is, like, are we actually going to do this, you know? some of these biobanks have samples of hundreds and hundreds of different species, you know, maybe eventually it will be thousands and thousands. I'm sure if the panda goes extinct, we'll bring back the panda. I'm sure if tigers go extinct, we'll bring back tigers. But as I talk a lot about in the book, the extinction crisis is not of course just charismatic megafauna. It's tens of thousands of other species And we can tell ourselves we can bring them all back in the future. But who is going to do that and where is that going to happen? Again, we live in an austerity era and austerity is, you know, only going to get worse as the climate crisis hits. So unless we have this, you know, bright future of luxury, communism people talk about kind of infinite nanotechnology surplus like where is this going to be happening this process to restore yeah. all of our ecosystem species by species so again as I say in the book some of these buybacks just feel a bit to me like you know a library that technically buys every book and never deaccessions any but if they're all just on a shelf never getting checked out then what difference does it make
0: yeah, well, I suppose there's a kind of sense in which if it, it, it maybe you know lessens the drama, or lessens the pain, or lessens the philosophical, or moral, or ethical dimensions of the extinction that's you know being created. I suppose, and and you say who's going to do something with it? Presumably, there you know, as you said, in a in a environment of austerity, it'll be uh, places where profits can be found. and you said the the charismatic megafauna or who knows what versions that will attract. Uh, investment or look uh, lucrative and profitable and uh, you know as 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 you you, in the the book these these systems get gamed um, uh, very very quickly and profoundly and are almost built in 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 that way that have these uh, underpinnings Um, but, but very interesting it's it's a very detailed world that you 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 create with Bio, it's biological underpinnings and new technologies, financial markets. Uh, you've, I guess, been described or maybe accused or of being a systems novelist. <laughs> what does that mean or how does that, would you say that, that in this, this book in some way fulfills that idea?
1: Yeah, I mean, so f- for those who don't know, a systems novel well, I I uh often find myself using the term hysterical realism. I guess hysterical realism isn't quite the same as the systems novel, but there is a big overlap uh with people like Dave Foster Wallace and Don DeLillo and Richard Powers and people sometimes mention White Teeth by Zadie Smith. Um Thomas
0: Pynchon.
1: Oh, yeah, Pynchon, of course. Uh, Yeah, he's kind of the original one. Um, I mean, Gaddis, people mentioned. But, yeah, basically these, um, these big novels whose, you know, creed is basically you can't really depict the contemporary world Without throwing a dizzying level of detail at the reader, because the fact is, the contemporary world, the fabric of it just is a dizzying level of, a detail, of detail. Everything is so interconnected and technological and volatile that the only way to really understand the situation we're in is to really kind of dig into any number of subjects whether it's you know politics or economics or the internet or tennis or you know eco-terrorism or cancer or any number of other things like it's it's not enough just to train your focus on the human heart because like If you do that, you're not really telling the story of human beings in the postmodern world. You have to kind of widen out and focus in, which makes for very big, complicated novels, many of which I love. Um, But the systems novel is now incredibly out of fashion Partly because it's just strongly associated with straight white male novelists of a previous generation. Uh, Partly also, I suppose, just because, you know, fashion is cyclical, people were getting kind of sick of it. Um, But yeah, I still love systems novels. I still write them.
0: Your focus on the financialization of of the environment, of responses to the environment, I think is very interesting. And I, I haven't come across, I mean, I I don't read a great deal of fiction, but I certainly haven't come across, uh, you, you really have it in the crosshairs, the, you know, and, and, and as you say, the dynamics of the markets, how they operate, why corporations and other organizations have incentives to behave in particular ways. And, you know, and this really is the, the the solution that that uh, many many corporations and governments are are really driving forward, and uh, it it often feels to me this is not getting enough attention. You know, and uh, they talk about the vast sums of money that are needed to to you know make the the transition to low carbon and so forth. Where is this money going to come from? And and and, and the kind of de risking that goes on. Uh, in terms of making it attractive for institutional investors to invest in in you know Gabon or other african countries and 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 what goes on there as well but i just that that that, that having the 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 blend of the 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 actual operations and the pervasiveness of of, of the financial dynamics as well as this uh, the, as well as the technologies which which feel to be not too far away
1: yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons I set the novel only uh 15 to 20 years in the future. You know, I could have gone further out, but 15 to 20 years, you can make a pretty good bet on uh how things are going to look. Then I mean, obviously you'll get most of it wrong, but you know you'll get at least some of it, right? And it feels like a pretty safe bet to say that in 15 to 20 years uh, you know, drones deep fakes, self-driving cars, very advanced AI. Like, you know, I'd bet any amount of money on those things being part of the texture of life in another 20 years. So um, uh, that stuff felt like I, you know, I wasn't going to look like too much of a fool if someone picks this book up closer to the time when it's set
0: yeah and just coming back to this question about the, the research you, you you've done uh it, to to understand the current state of of, of the, the the you know you, you talked about the carbon markets, but generally your understanding and, and interest I suppose in the financial markets and so forth uh how, how much research did you do for this book and and were there some things that you discovered that really surprised you or what what, what did you find that was particularly interesting?
1: Uh, I mean, I actually didn't do that much. Um, like, all, nearly all of my research about carbon credits came from this one PDF because it just had kind of everything in it. Let Let me find the name of it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Carbon Trading by Tamara Gilbertson and Oscar Reyes, which is... Uh, No, I guess it is a book, but I think it's also sort of a report. Uh, And it had, um, like, pretty much all of my research was PDFs rather than books because a lot of the stuff I was writing about hasn't really filtered through into books yet. Like, a lot of my best research was I'd find a PDF that was, you know, somewhere deep down in the file structure of the archives of some European regulatory agency or whatever. And like, that's where you get all the details that make the world feel real. Um, Yeah. You know, that, that's not going to be in a library yet. The, the, the most interesting stuff I got out of this book, carbon trading by Gilbertson and Reyes was the role of the, Former Soviet bloc countries. So, I mean, all of this is in the book, basically, where the names change. But, um, you know, when when these uh, carbon credit systems allocate credits to countries, or in other words, say to them, this is how many credits we feel is reasonable. I mean, this is this is how many emissions we feel it's reasonable for you to emit, and if you go above this, you'll have to pay for it, and if you go below this, you'll be rewarded with credits you can sell. You've got to set a baseline for each country, like how many, you know, what what how, how much emissions should this country should in inverted commerce uh, be pumping out every year. And for some reason, a lot of the baselines were set uh, in the late 80s. You know, retrospectively, you know, they chose a kind of slice of time, like this is what you're supposed to look like. And any variance from that is how we calculate uh, what your credit situation is. But that meant that um, countries like... Poland were still their baseline was set in the later years of the Soviet Union. And, you know, whatever the problems were, the Soviet Union, Poland at that time was still, you know, burning a lot of coal, had a huge industrial sector. But then after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh a lot of industrial sectors in a lot of those countries went through all kinds of You know, fits and convulsions and collapses. And for a while their emissions went way down because a lot of those industries hadn't really picked themselves back up yet. So these Eastern European countries were rewarded as if they'd gone through amazing environmental reforms, which I mean, in a sense, they had because of their the dip in their economies. But yeah, because their emissions were so much lower than they had been in the last days of the Soviet Union, they were allocated loads of extra credits, which they could then sell to Western European countries. So the Western European countries were allowed to emit more. So the kind of, you know, miserable on a human level collapse of these economies created this gap, which in a certain sense was lucrative but also kind of disastrous because it generated all these credits on the markets, which then meant that other other richer countries could buy these credits very cheaply and then didn't really have to worry about reducing their emissions yeah um all, all of this is in the past like obviously you know poland now is on course to i saw like exceed the uk gdp Per capita. But yeah, for a while in the early days of the European carbon credit system, it was all running very perversely. And, you know, the whole history of these market instruments is full of these little perverse details because basically it's an attempt by bureaucrats and think tanks to come up with a way to reduce emissions in these experimental ways which won't inconvenience the industry too much as opposed to just passing a law saying you can't ruin the environment anymore?
0: Well, that's a really crucial issue and question. And it's not a word that uh, many people like in, in the world of business, at least. I mean, it's that's it, it, a generalisation, but the regulation for sure and a lot more carrots than sticks, for sure. And at the heart of these approaches are these ideas of, you know, de-risking and financial returns and so forth. But not actually saying, no, this is not. We don't want this. We're going to, you know, put a, uh, you know, a ban on this, or we're going to put in place, uh, you know, very powerful regulations and so forth, and uh, ways in which companies can maintain the status quo. And governments, as well, in many ways, the uh, naming and and the way something like net zero and the introduction of the word net into it and what that means and so forth. I'm quite interested in this question about the this question of intelligence as well. That one of the key factors driving the the value of the extinction credits is whether the species is intelligent or not. Which is quite a, and I, I, I'm wondering. This is an area of interest to you, as I've seen you put together some reading lists around animal intelligence and so forth. Um, but also in the way you were saying earlier on, in terms of you know th- these biodiversity market mechanisms and so forth, the kind of information you need that is very uh, nuanced and granular in a particular ecosystem, that uh, it it may not be the most intelligent species that are the most important.
1: Yeah, I mean, so so in the book, the idea is it costs, you have to spend way more credits to eradicate an intelligent species than a less intelligent one. Some might say even that's too optimistic. You know, maybe if we ever did get some kind of extension credit system, they wouldn't even bother to make that distinction. But yeah, basically, I am very interested in animal cognition and animal intelligence. So I wanted to write about that in a book. So I had to build into my notional extinction credit system a way for intelligence to be relevant, uh, which then gave me the excuse to make one of the two main characters an animal intelligence evaluator. So she kind of goes from species to species, uh, testing whether they're intelligent or not, not because anyone really cares but just so that people know how much they'll have to spend in credits when they eradicate the species yeah i think there's
0: a quote is it from reese saint says something like uh uh, as a question you don't really believe that anything can have a value of its own beyond what function it serves for human beings and i guess underlying this there are pretty profound philosophical questions
1: yeah, one of the reasons I wrote the book was, uh, I just felt there was this lack of philosophical rigor in the way we talk about extinction, because everyone agrees that species extinction is bad, but I don't feel like anyone is really asking, well, exactly how bad is it and why is it bad? And the thing is, a lot of the arguments people make for why it's bad don't actually really stand up. Like, um, you know, there's this whole thing about, oh, it's such a disaster to cut down the rainforest because the rainforest is nature's medicine cabinet and probably every acre of rainforest is full of, you know, herbs that will end up being the basis for some new medicine, which will cure cancer or whatever. Like you hear that a lot, but the fact is rainforest is incredibly cheap to buy up. So if it were the case that every acre of rainforest has, Potentially world changing innovations in it, then why haven't all these incredibly rich Swiss pharmaceutical companies bought up huge amounts of the rainforest so that they can patent all the medicines? Is
0: that not a bit, is that not a bit, look, taking this market idea? If it it had value, it would have a market price. It hasn't got a market price, therefore it can't have any value.
1: Well, but this is the thing I think people make these arguments for why extinction is bad and they say, they they talk about stuff like oh nature's medicine cabinet or uh, you know ecosystem balance or whatever, but actually a lot of these sort of pragmatic arguments where it's like oh if we're not careful then actually the consequences could be way worse than we realise. A lot of them don't actually really hold up. So. Like, I don't.
0: In what, sorry, in what way, Ned, don't they hold up?
1: Well, I talk about this in the book. So, like I said, like, the fact is actually that, uh, you know, yes, the rainforest is nature's medicine cabinet, but any given acre of rainforest is probably not profitable. Otherwise, the Swiss pharmaceutical companies would have bought
0: it. So, like, that argument... That's, that's a really interesting question. Is that the case? Because that does suggest this, you know, belief in the efficiency of markets. It almost suggests you're saying, well, if it had value, the Swiss pharmaceutical companies would value it. But maybe, maybe markets don't work. And maybe there could be tremendous value, but just because it hasn't been put a price on it.
1: Uh, I mean... I know markets aren't wholly efficient, but like I do agree with this argument. Like, if it had value to capitalism, I think capitalism would would, would value it. Like capitalism never misses a chance to buy some mining rights or some drilling rights or whatever. But um buying rainforests and then combing through the herbs just probably isn't ultimately going to be profitable i mean obviously it's great if someone else does it like if some helpful uh scientist does it on their own time and then they find some amazing new herb which can kill cancer or whatever then that's great and that could happen but people people talk about like it's so short-sighted that we're destroying this rainforests Because we could get so much out of it. And I think people would be getting stuff out of it now if there was so much to get out of it. I mean,
0: well, I think there's an interesting question there. Yeah. And I I probably, uh, we've talked about this, but the, you know, in reality, when you look at industries like the pharmaceutical industry and the technology industry, much of the primary research, fundamental research is not done by the corporations, it's done by governments. And then these corporations take advantage of that. And you know they bring them to market and so forth. So I, I I don't know whether you'd expect the pharmaceutical company. You know who knows what governments are doing on that front. But I, I think it's an interesting question, and I, it brings up I guess for me this question. I mean, as well certainly as I've been in the podcast, the more I get exposed to and spend time reading about various environmental you know crises and issues and so forth, it's not always if ever, very happy reading. And I'm wondering when it comes to extinction, are you worried about a mass extinction and an extinction event? Or has your level of worry, should we say, changed over the years as you're writing and thinking about this?
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, so, you know, let me be clear about what I'm talking about. So when I say that the rainforest has no value, of course, I'm not saying it it has no value. The point I'm trying to make is that so many of the arguments we hear about species extinction are basically saying it's bad for us if species go extinct. Yes. Um, Yes. And in some cases that's true, but actually the fact is, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of species on earth. Most of them are little insects that we don't care about If most of those species went extinct, but other insects, you know, replaced them, so we, you know, we had the same volume of insects, but, you know, way, way fewer species, we as in human beings would actually be fine. So ultimately, it doesn't, I think, really work to hang your arguments against species extinction on self-interest yeah, no. for human beings or it'll make yeah, our lives yeah. harder or whatever and i don't know any of these individual arguments could be wrong it could be that if you are someone from the swiss pharmaceutical industry they would say no he's completely misunderstood like i might be wrong about this my point is if you try and defend against species extinction or if you try and explain why species extinction is wrong with all these little what about this what about this what about this?" The problem is you're relying then very heavily on the some f- complicated factual claim about like what we need out of ecosystems. And then quite often that complicated factual claim turns out to be slightly flimsier that, than you'd want. So one of the arguments in the book is that if you really want to argue against extinction, you have to do so philosophically. You have yes. to... Yeah explain the value of biodiversity and the whole book of life in terms which are not just about like, oh, well, what if someone comes up with a new antibiotic or whatever from the rainforest?
0: What are some of the arguments? What are some of the arguments do you think here, Ned, in terms of maybe the neglected?
1: Well, so, you know, that I go into this in the book, which is basically that... um any species that exists today this is a I, I quote this in one of my epigraphs is the for, forward point in the flame of life that has been burning for millions and millions of years or in other words the existence of any species on earth is this extraordinarily improbable thing where this organism has been created that's so perfect it's survived an essentially infinite number of events which ought to have wiped it out and wiped out the species to its left and the species to its right. And I don't mean an asteroid hitting or whatever. I mean, you get a genetic mutation and maybe that genetic mutation will do something good for you or is on the way to doing something really good. But, you know, you get eaten by a bird or whatever before you can breed. For a species to develop even some minor new characteristic, which is going to be evolutionarily advantageous it has to stack just fluke good luck on top of fluke good luck on top of fluke good luck for millions of years and then the end result is some incredible thing which shouldn't shouldn't exist but has kind of run this gauntlet and agonizingly slowly been like kind of whittled down into its perfect final form so the existence of any species on earth is the numbers are just dizzying because it's just so improbable that it could even exist and then as a result of that the 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 you know qualities we see in all these species around us are just so strange and whimsical and extraordinary so the the argument i end up making the book and i'm not saying i i necessarily agree with this but one of my characters agrees with this is it doesn't matter what a species does for us to destroy any species on earth simply because but be, be, because of this you know because it's such an extraordinary thing that it even exists in the universe for, to destroy any species on earth is the equivalent of destroying you know a million Mona Lisas, or like a billion Blue Guitar by Wallace Stevenss or whatever you know, like, or you could, or you could say. I mean, this is a controversial discussion they have in the book. Many, many individual human beings—the sheer value that a species has because of its uniqueness and its improbability—that is the deep, fundamental value that is not going to be undermined by like new research about whether we actually need honeybees or whatever. So and again, I'm not saying I believe that, but that's the argument made in the book that like the philosophical reason why species extinction is bad is n- nothing to do with what species do for us. It's the fact that they exist in the universe and the process that they are the consummation of. So if you believe that, then you're not just worried about the extinction crisis. It becomes to seem like the most horrifying thing that has ever happened in the history of the universe. I mean one one palliating factor is that of course, most of the species that have ever existed on earth went extinct before human beings came along. So it's not like nothing was going extinct. And then, you know, we caused the climate crisis and now everything's going extinct. Like, the extinctions we're causing are a tiny fraction of the extinctions that has ever happened. Like, extinction is a fact of life. But when you think that we're accelerating the rate of it by, you know, hundreds or thousands of times, then if you buy into this argument and you really stare it in the face then it is an atrocity on a level that's almost impossible to wrap your head around. Again, I don't necessarily agree with that. Like My vibe, to be honest, is more, I watch a video of some orangutans or some wolves or something, and I just think about how we are destroying their future and they don't even know about it and they didn't do anything wrong, and it just makes me feel incredibly guilty and sad, which is a much more banal and sentimental way to look at things. But yeah, the argument of the book is that if you get down to the philosophical bedrock, this is an issue so big, it's almost impossible to even confront without going insane. Uh,
0: That's uh, fascinating and tremendously important and at the same time as you focused on the financialization of of the environmental factors and so forth there's this question that comes up in you know how do you value nature a big momentum around what they call natural capital and things like that and implicit in some of these models is the idea that um, exactly what you're saying which is that uh, what what is the value for, to even to the extent how do they add value how does a tree if the tree is just in a field well that doesn't have any value until something's happened to that tree that makes it add value for us coming up with a, a, a financial figure for nature but even at a deeper philosophical level i mean financial financialization and financial measures are just one but underpinning that as you say is this fundamental philosophical question about you know value and, and and who's doing the valuing and um you know the how, how that's a foundation in 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 many ways and how we think about nature and our relationship with nature very interesting indeed and and so much more to, to that one could potentially discuss i mean fascinating these ideas this idea of this genome databases these biobanks we call multimodal preservation so you get into this what is it uh this, what's it called in physics, the cat?
1: Oh, Schrodinger's cat.
0: Yeah, you get into a little bit of a Schrodinger. Does something exist or not exist? You know, if there's not a living individual left, but there is some kind of multimodal, whatever that is, preservation. And I guess the ways in which those kind of definitions would and do get manipulated for financial gain or for, for, for any kind of gain getting involved in in, in language games to try and, you know, uh, avoid the reality of of the actual elimination uh, and destruction of a particular species. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what's next, Ned?
1: Uh, I have started another novel. Um, This one is very much about the current political situation. I mean, so with Venomous Lumpsucker, I had to face the fact that it would be mildly out of date by the time I published it. Like there's some stuff about Ukraine and Russia in the book that already feels like an alternative history. And, you know, I had to like hastily put in some references to coronavirus. So I knew it was going to be slightly out of date. I'm now trying to write one about the current political situation, which is an insane venture because you know it will be out of date by the time i'm halfway through let alone by the time i submit it let alone by the time i publish it but uh i don't know well yeah we'll we'll see if i can make it work
0: well i wish you the very best of success and thank you so much for joining me today and for writing such a fascinating and entertaining book And um, with deep, deep philosophical questions and lots to think about and uh, lots of fun along the way. Um, So thank you and best of luck with your ongoing work. Uh,
1: Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me.
0: Green finance is increasingly presented as a crucial way to address climate change and biodiversity laws. Yet more often than not, financial alchemy is used to obfuscate and repackage dirty activities, which are then rebranded as green, thus maintaining the status quo. The Green Finance Observatory is an independent NGO whose mission is to analyse and decrypt these new financial markets based on pollution and nature's destruction. If you feel it is important to identify and debunk false green finance claims, fight climate change profiteering and other carbon finance mercenaries, please go to greenfinanceobservatory.org where you can support its work. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.